This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987. Institute for Christian Economics. Tyler, Texas. Chapter 8. Filled Vessels Hath not the potter power over the clay, of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Romans 9, 21-24 God has created two kinds of vessels, vessels made to receive his honor, and vessels made to receive his dishonor. The latter are called vessels of wrath. The text does not say, nor does Paul's argument warrant, the idea that the vessels were made by God to receive either honor or dishonor, mercy or wrath. They are not neutral vessels, each awaiting whatever the vessel itself may pour into it in history. The analogy is that of the potter and the clay. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and unto whom he will he hardeneth. Verse 18. Why does he raise the analogy of the potter and the pot? Because it is the next stage in the argument of the self-professed autonomous man against the doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God in choosing some people to receive eternal life and others to receive eternal judgment. The autonomous man immediately sees the logical implication of Paul's assertion and counters with the well-known and traditional argument that this would deny the free will autonomy of the individual. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Verse 19 Two kinds of logic Paul does not say that this answer is illogical. It is so logical that he asserts, Thou wilt then say unto me. He knows just how logical the argument is. He replies instead that the argument is ethically illegitimate. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Verse 20. He then presents the analogy of the pots and the potter. The potter does what he wants to with the lump of clay. He has a perfect right to make vessels of destruction with it. Asking this question, why does he yet find fault, is an act of rebellion. Asserting any variant of it, such as, this makes God the author of sin, is also an act of rebellion. For the Bible says that God is not the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14.33, or any other sin. It is crystal clear what Paul is arguing. The structure of his argument is obvious. God makes two sorts of ethical vessels out of one common clay, humanity. Each type of vessel has its respective eternal destiny. The vessels have no say in the matter. They cannot legitimately reply to the Creator. Why have you made me thus? And since you have, how can you legitimately hold me responsible for my ethical acts and my eternal destiny? Why not? Because God is the sovereign Creator. I realize that this argument leaves no room for what is commonly called free will, meaning autonomy, meaning that God either does not control or may not even know, 
whether a man will or will not accept his grace in Jesus Christ. On the contrary, God knows, God determines, and God is the sovereign potter. He predestinates. He chose the redeemed before the foundation of the world. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 3-6 Would any reader test himself to see if any traces of humanism remain in his thinking? Here is the test. If the theology of Paul in Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 in any way disturbs a person, then there are traces of autonomous, humanist man still left in his thinking. If any variation of the forbidden argument appears in a person's mind, why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Then he is still is thinking humanistically. If he clings to the doctrine of free will because it is a logical, corollary, or personal responsibility, then he is still thinking rebelliously. He has substituted humanism's logic for the express teaching of Romans 9. Paul makes it clear. 1. Complete eternal responsibility is inescapable. And 2. God predestines some to be vessels of wrath and others to be vessels of His grace. We must affirm both doctrines, not because of their logic or lack of logic, but because of God's explicit revelation in Romans 9. To reject Paul's conclusion is to reject a portion of his inspired word, which is the essence of humanism and rebellion. It is Adam's sin. Did you pass the test? Few Christians do. This is why the doctrine of common grace has gone on in Calvinist circles and not in anti-Calvinist circles. Those who are not Calvinists do not believe in God's double predestination, meaning the equal ultimacy of wrath and grace. For that matter, some Calvinists don't accept it either, which has affected some of the debates over common grace. The question arises, how does God view those who are not predestined to eternal life? Does he regard them with some degree of favor or none during their earthly, earthly lives? Do they, as creatures as such, or men as such, become the recipients of his love or favor after a fashion? Is the unregenerate vessel of wrath in some way the object of God's favor to clay in general? The Synod of 1924 said yes. Huxema said no. Huxema was correct. Two kinds of love. The theological confusion arises because of the conventional de definition of love, which is defined as favor or the emotional attachment of one person to another. This is not how the Bible defines love. Love in the Bible comes in two forms, depending on whether a person is a vessel of blessing or a vessel of wrath. There is love with attachment and love without attachment. The first is positive in its emotive attachment and also judicial. The second is negative in its emotional detachment and also judicial. The first involves continuity, inheritance by God's adoption. The second involves discontinuity, disinheritance by God's wrath. For those in God's covenant, love has all five categories of the covenant in the form of blessing. 1. The presence of God, the transcendent. 2. Hierarchy, a place in God's church. 3. The law of God. Law written in the heart. 
4. The judgment of God. Justification is God's forensic declaration of their righteousness. And 5. Inheritance as adopted sons. Those outside the covenant also have all five points, but in the form of wrath. 1. Presence of God as accuser, even in hell. Psalm 139, 8. 2. Hierarchy. God is sovereign over them. 3. The law of God. The work of the law in their heart. 4. The judgment of God. God's forensic declaration of their guilt. 5. Inheritance. From earthly wrath to eternal wrath. Thus, when God tells us to love our fellow man, we are to show sinners the same kind of judicial love that God shows them. We are to represent God to them. First, we are to serve as accusers, either verbally or by setting a good example. It was David's sin of adultery, Nathan said, which gave the enemies of God an opportunity to blaspheme, Second Samuel 12.14. He offered them a poor testimony. God showed his wrath against David to remind the blasphemers of the consequences of sin. God killed the baby. Verses 15 through 19. Second, we are to seek lawful rule over them civilly in order to bring them under God's hierarchy in civil law. Third, we are to preach the law of God to them. This was required every seventh year in Israel. Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 13. Fourth, we are to serve as civil judges over them, executing righteous civil judgment. Fifth, we are to refrain from coveting their property for it is the inheritance of their children. We are instead to work hard and inherit that inheritance by our productivity. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Proverbs 13.22b We are not told to love them indiscriminately. The proper form of love is defined by the covenantal position of love's recipient. We do not love unbelievers as if they were believers. This is why Paul forbade mixed marriages between covenant keepers and covenant breakers. To love an unbeliever as one should love a believer is forbidden. In the marriage covenant, it is to be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14 This is also true in the church covenant and is the basis of excommunication. Only in the civil covenant are we legitimately allowed to be unequally yoked in history. But it is our God-assigned task eventually to rule over them, as the Israelites ruled the Gibeonites. Joshua 9 we are not to serve them as hewers of wood or drawers of water, except during periods of God's judgment on us historically because of our prior and possibly continuing covenantal unfaithfulness to Him. They are to serve us by obeying biblical law. Filled to the brim in history God told Abraham, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Genesis 15.16 the historical development of Canaanite culture still was not complete. Did God hate sin in Abraham's day? Of course. Did God hate sin? Then why did he give the Canaanites four more generations of sinning? To fill up their cup of iniquity. He gave them more rope to hang themselves with. To use the analogy of, the, of Romans 12.20, God gave them more time to heap extra coals of fire on their heads. I have argued that God's common grace increases over time. I have also argued that sinful man's responsibility before God increases because of this additional common grace. We can see this process in four Old Testament examples, the Flood's generation, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. The Flood Long life was extended to the pre-flood population. Methuselah died at age 969 in the year of the Flood. 
Paul notes that the commandment to honor parents is the first commandment to which a promise is attached. Ephesians 6.2 The specific promise is long life. Here above all other promises is the one that men universally respect. O king, live forever. Was a common expression of homage in the ancient world. Daniel 2.4.3.9 and 5.10 Clearly, those of the era before the flood were recipients of lengthening life. Yet they were progressively evil. God finally stood in stood it no longer, and he killed them all, and all living animals under their covenantal jurisdiction. He made one exception, Noah. He placed representative animals under Noah's covenantal jurisdiction. He gave them life. Why did God give men increasing common grace if they were growing more evil? As a way to increase the magnitude of their judgment at the flood. In this case, it was a question of more water on their heads. Fiery coals came eternally. When God intends to bring an end to a covenantally rebellious culture, He first increases their power and might. This speeds up the process of judgment. They fill up their iniquity faster and higher. Then He, then he destroys them in a discontinuous act of judgment. They had a testimony before them, Noah's life. They also had another, Noah's slowly growing ark. They of course had the work of the law in their hearts, but they also had unique historical testimonies to God's covenantal curses, the testimony of ethics, Noah's righteousness, God's coming judgment, the ark, and at the end of their inheritance, the flood that the ark pointed to. In this instance, the wealth of the wicked was not laid up for the righteous, except technological knowledge that was passed on through Noah's family. Their external wealth was laid up for destruction, a testimony to all men throughout history concerning the final judgment to come. The flood was as close to ending history as God ever came. He promised never to do it again until the day of judgment. The rainbow is his covenant sign of, the, of this promise. Genesis nine seventeen. The Canaanites. This was a culture so perverse that God instructed Joshua to destroy all of them, or at least chase them forever out of the land. God was so serious about this that he said that if they refused to destroy them, he would depart from them, remove his presence. Joshua 7.12 Every man, woman, and child of Jericho was killed, except for Rahab's covenanted household. Samuel later told Saul to destroy the Amalekites, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. 1 Samuel 15.3 But Saul was greedy. He kept the animals for Israel and lenient to a fellow ruler, King Agag. For this, God removed the kingship from Saul. 1511 To emphasize the point, Samuel hacked King Agag to pieces. 1533 Agag was a murderer of women and children. Samuel reminded him, so will his mother be childless. This was also a reminder to Saul that Saul had broken the terms of the covenant. This is what God does to those who break it. This is what cutting the covenant means. Genesis fifteen nine through seventeen. The Canaanites had received the testimony of Abraham and Isaac. The Philistines' response was to fill up Abraham's waters wells with dirt, in a display of envy. Genesis twenty six fourteen through fifteen. The Canaanites later came under judgment during the famine that drove Jacob and his family down to Egypt. Then they saw that Jacob's son had become ruler of Egypt and the source of bread for Canaan. Still they did not repent. Then came the Exodus. For a generation, Israel wandered in the wilderness, 
Canaan grew richer, yet the people of Canaan did not repent. They built houses and planted vineyards, but they would not inherit. God was making an inheritance for his people. Houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou dig diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not. Deuteronomy 6.11 God's common grace was heaping coals of fire on their heads. They continued in their sins, filling up the iniquity of the Amorites. God was also making an inheritance for his people. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. This is why there can be an increase in God's common grace in response to evil man's increasingly evil ways. It is a means of testifying to them of a coming judgment which will be historically total. Their external blessings make them worth destroying. God is going to remove their inheritance and give it to his people. He fills up their vessels with blessings because he is about to break them as vessels of wrath and pour the wealth into the vessels of honor. When wealth increases in the face of increasing wickedness, temporal judgment is coming. A transfer of wealth is imminent. The Egyptians The Pharaoh of Joseph's day brought himself and his nation under the external terms of the covenant. He did what Joseph told him to do. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. Genesis 42.40 He transferred civil authority to Joseph publicly by giving him his ring and the second chariot. 41, 42, and 43 Egypt then got rich. The judgment of famine stripped the people of Egypt of their land, animals, and freedom. They sold themselves into bondage to the Pharaoh in order to buy food. Genesis 47.13-26 They were still evil. So God sold them into slavery to their God, the Pharaoh. But they survived. God gave them life. Pharaoh gave the family of Joseph the land of Goshen, the best land of Egypt, Genesis 47.6. This was a testimony to Egypt and Canaan. God rewards his people. The Egyptians did not repent as a nation. They despised shepherds, Genesis 46.34, which was the occupation of the Hebrews. So what was God's judgment against them after Moses fled? He delivered them into the hands of the Amalekites, which conventional historians call the Hykos, Hyksos, or shepherd kings. Many people did join themselves covenantally to Israel in the years following Joseph. They became Hebrews. There was no other possible explanation for the rapid growth of the Hebrews. It could not have been accomplished by a high birth rate alone. But the nation as a whole remained pagan. This is why... There was no covenantally faithful Egyptians remaining in Egypt on the night of the Passover. There was a dead firstborn male in every Egyptian household. Exodus 12.29 The covenant had been eliminated by Moses' day. Yet we know that covenant children do persist. So the covenant of grace had never been established in the first place. Thus, we conclude that faithful societies had to submit to circumcision, just as the Shechemites did. Genesis 34, in order to remain in God's social covenant. If they refused to become circumcised as nations, then individuals of foreign nations had to covenant directly with the Hebrews and become Hebrews. Deuteronomy 23, 3. The Egyptians then placed the Hebrews in bondage. They attempted to destroy the source of special grace in their midst. They were allowed by God to, to increase their evil. God increased their wealth so that the Hebrews could spoil them when the Exodus came. Exodus 12, 35-36 The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. The Babylonians 
Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson after his seven years of bestial behavior. In the eighth year after God struck him with insanity, he was restored. Daniel 4, 34 He was converted and wrote this chapter of the Bible. King Belshazzar was not so wise. He made a feast, even as the Medo-Persian Empire was besieging the gates of the city. At this feast, he committed an act of symbolic theft. He took the golden vessels that had been in the temple and which had been stored in the treasury of Babylon, and he brought them to the feast. He set them before the thousand lords, and they ate their meal using God's vessels as dinner plates. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote, Daniel 5, 5a. God had not punished Babylon for stealing the vessels of the temple. This violation of the temple was to teach the Hebrews a lesson, not to put their trust in the temple rather than in God's law. Jeremiah had warned them, Trust ye not in lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Jeremiah 7, 4-7 through God brought them to destruction in one night when they ate from those same vessels. The vessels of dishonor are not entitled to eat from the vessels of honor. It is their place to eat the crumbs that fall from the table of the Lord. By elevating themselves to the table of the Lord symbolically, they were immediately destroyed. This is what the reprobates do throughout history. They are allowed to eat the crumbs that fall from the Lord's table. Then they become discontented with their position of subservience. They revolt and grab the vessels of honor. They place God's people in bondage, as the Babylonians placed the temple vessels in their treasury, as a judgment of God against his disobedient people. This is permitted for a time. They use God's people for their own purposes, as Laban tried to use Jacob, as Potiphar tried to use Joseph, and as the Egyptians tried to use the Israelites. Then they go too far. Symbolically, they eat off, the, off of the sacred vessels. They try to destroy God's people, as the Pharaoh tried to kill the male newborns. Eventually, the continuity of common grace to them is cut short in a mighty display of God's great discontinuity of judgment. The final judgment is the archetype, the end of history, the end of the continuity of common grace. The prison experience leads to the triumph of the righteous. Jacob in Laban's service led to Jacob's leaving with the best of the flock. Joseph's years in the prison led to his position as second in command in Egypt. Daniel ate vegetables at the king's table in Babylon as a servant, but he later ruled, even on that final night of Babylon, Daniel 5.29. Jesus died on a cross, the ultimate attempt of the wicked to consume God's people, but rose again from the dead to gain absolute power, Matthew 28.18. And then he ascended into heaven, Acts 1.9. The special curse of prison leads to the special blessing of rulership. Simultaneously, the common grace of power leads to the reprobate, to exercise that power by imprisoning the faithful. The tables are then turned in a, in a display of God's judgment. The table of the Lord crushes them. Overnight, the righteous gain the inheritance of the wicked. Conclusion The increase of common grace accompanies an increase in wickedness during the period in which God fills up the vessels of wrath with their iniquity. He increases their inheritance in order to transfer it to His people during the discontinuity of judgment. Judgment unto historical oblivion for the reprobate, and judgment of deliverance for the people of God. 
the fact of God's increasing common grace alongside of an increase in wickedness is no problem for the person who understands the relationship between historical continuity and discontinuity. It is only when the extraneous and erroneous idea of God's favor toward the reprobate is brought in that common grace becomes a confusing doctrine. Then another error is added. The idea that the increasing self-knowledge of the reprobate is accompanied by increasing self-consistency with their own principles of God, man, time, and law. In fact, there is decreasing consistency. The reprobate must act in terms of God's law in order to gain power. They do not become consistent and therefore commit immediate suicide individually. Instead, they take steps that lead to God's external destruction of them as a covenantal unit. Their cup of iniquity is filled to the brim. Then God disinherits them publicly and transfers their wealth to his people. In summary, 1. God has created two types of vessels, dishonorable and honorable. 2. These vessels are not neutral receptacles. 3. The doctrine of free autonomous will is humanistic. 4. There are two kinds of logic, biblical and humanistic. 5. Grace and wrath are equally ultimate. 6. God shows no favor to vessels of wrath. 7. There are two kinds of love that correspond to covenant-keeping and covenant-breaking. 8. One is favorable and one is unfavorable. 9. One gives his people tools and the other gives the reprobates coals of fire. 10. Christians must use the respective kinds of love in dealing with covenant keepers and covenant breakers. 11. Common grace increases over time. 12. Evil men become more covenantally powerful over time if God is setting them up for their public disinheritance. 13. This process is illustrated by the flood, the invasion of Canaan, the time in Egypt, and the time in Babylon. 14. When the vessels of dishonor attempt to eat from the table of special grace by trying to destroy the vessels of honor, then God brings judgment. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.